0: don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the show. This is The Crypto Economy with me, Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are reading again today. And uh, I talked about doing a Guy's Take episode, and I am going to follow this piece with a Guy's Take episode. But this is basically right in line with what we're talking about. It. And since uh, since we just hit... Um, The piece by 100 trillion USD on how scarcity is the real, uh, is a much better model. The stock to flow model is much better at understanding the uh, value of this entire network and using it as a model for predicting its future value. It immediately begs the question, immediately asks that, it challenges that default Keynesian perspective um, that... um, that deflation is bad for the economy, that like, wouldn't it technically mean that prices are always falling and wouldn't this be a terrible thing? You know, We've been completely led to believe that this, could be, that this would be the most terrible thing for uh, the economy, that uh, a constant price deflation and just deflation in general is something to be totally afraid of and uh, we should never want it to happen. Inflation is good. Inflation is what grows the economy. And I want to hit that point extremely hard and uh, uh, as thoroughly as possible. So that's why I want to read uh, Hulsman's piece, uh, which will take two episodes. We will be, break this up in uh, uh, for today and tomorrow. And it is titled "Deflation and Liberty." And it is it's essentially like a precursor or like a short version, essentially like a like a summary or cliff notes, maybe. Um, not quite that. The book goes way more into it, but it is essentially a short version of the theme, the idea behind the ethics of money production, his incredible work, and basically the treatise on uh, uh, money production, like what it means to be a money producer and what is ethical versus unethical and what promotes liberty and what promotes um, fraud, basically. Before we get into this, though, uh, checking my eToro app Ah, uh, this morning, and we have broken up past the uh, that little downtrend line, and I'm curious to see if we're going to go sideways. But I think the the pressure that helped this move up actually appears to be. I mean, we had a uh, the Feds announced a rate cut this morning, and the fact that Bitcoin responded with a pretty fat green candle today, um, after that. May not be coincidental. Uh, and it would be very interesting to see um, Bitcoin be a counter, counter indicator for something like that. Usually, it's moves. people are constantly trying to peg it to, you know, something that happens elsewhere in the markets or some hack or something like that. But what you actually see is that like good news uh, has no effect really, when we're in a bear market and bad news has no effect when we're in a bull market. So I, I typically just find all of that stuff kind of arbitrary and it, it Bitcoin has always kind of done its own thing. It's not really been correlated with anything else, but we're getting, the market is getting large enough and it's now is um, enough part of the legacy and the mainstream uh Mentality, or like kind of their their view of the the financial and investment scope of things, um, because it's kind of squeezed its way into that whole uh, frame. Uh, we could see that change. We could see Bitcoin be a counter indicator to something exactly like this: the Fed cutting rates, um, you know, uh, uneasiness in the bond markets, et cetera, et cetera. It may start responding to these events where I don't think it's really done that in the past. Um, it's got enough of a hand or a foot or whatever in the actual, the actual legacy financial system with the CME futures and like all these other things. We have a lot of avenues now to get into, uh, Bitcoin that it genuinely could do that. And this is very interesting to see. And I'm probably going to, uh, start looking for an entry point here, um, Still not a hundred percent sure, and I may just wait until we break up because I'm not really trying to catch this whole move and buy the whole like flat bottom if i think if if we're gonna break up from here, I think we're gonna be on another sustained move so uh we are at ninety nine eighty right now on the uh eToro app, and I'm going to watch it very closely for the next little while and see if I can uh Maybe get in when one of these uh, smaller charts looks like it's had a pretty decent little pullback and ready to turn up on like maybe like the hourly chart or something. Okay, but we will stay up to that. Don't forget to check out eToro. Um, I'll have the link in the show notes. Um, and lastly, tomorrow today is the last day. The price goes up again tomorrow for Bitblock Boom. So if you do not have your tickets, get them now. The coupon, the discount code is CC. So do not forget that CC for Crypto Economy. That'll get you 30% off and get them today before the price goes up. So let's start into this piece made available by Mises.org, the Mises Institute, uh, where so many many great works um, just like this one are made available and free to, to read or listen to in this case. And uh, this one is again titled Deflation and Liberty by Herg Guido Holzmann. Preface It is my great pleasure to see this little essay in print. Written and presented more than five years ago, it was welcomed at the time by scholars with a background in Austrian economics. However, it was not understood and was rejected by those who did not have this background. In order to reach a broader audience, a short essay would simply not do. I therefore decided not to publish Deflation and Liberty and started to work on The Ethics of Money Production, a book-length presentation of the argument, which has just become available from the Mises Institute. In the present crisis, The citizens of the United States have to make an important choice. They can support a policy designed to perpetuate our current fiat money system and the sorry state of banking and of financial markets that it logically entails. Or they can support a policy designed to reintroduce a free market in money and finance. This latter policy requires the government to keep its hands off It should not produce money, nor should it appoint a special agency to produce money. It should not force the citizens to use fiat money by imposing legal tender laws. It should not regulate banking and should not regulate financial markets. It should not try to fix the interest rate, the prices of financial titles, or commodity prices. Clearly, these measures are radical by present-day standards, and they are not likely to find sufficient support but they lack support out of ignorance and fear. We are told by virtually all the experts on money and finance, the central bankers and most university professors, that the crisis hits us despite the best efforts of the Fed, that money, banking, and financial markets are not meant to be free because they end up in disarray despite the massive presence of the government as a financial agent as a regulator and as money producer, that our monetary system provides us with great benefits that we would be foolish not to preserve. Those same experts therefore urge us to give the government an even greater presence in the financial markets to increase its regulatory powers and to encourage even more money production to be used for bailouts. However, All of these contentions are wrong, as economists have demonstrated again and again since the times of Adam Smith and David Ricardo. A paper money system is not beneficial from an overall point of view. It does not create real resources on which our welfare depends. It merely distributes the existing resources in a different manner. Some people gain, others lose. It is a system that makes banks and financial markets vulnerable because it induces them to economize on the essential safety valves of business, cash, and equity. Why hold any substantial cash balances if the central bank stands ready to lend you any amount that might be needed at a moment's notice? Why use your own money if you can finance your investments with cheap credit from the printing press? To raise these questions is to answer them. The crisis did not hit us despite the presence of our monetary and financial authorities. It hit us because of them. Then there is the fear factor. If we follow a hands-off policy, the majority of experts tell us, the banking industry, the financial markets, and much of the rest of the economy will be wiped out in a bottomless deflationary spiral. The present essay argues that this is a half-truth. It is true that without further government invention, there would be a deflationary spiral. It is not true that this spiral would be bottomless and wipe out the economy. It would not be a mortal threat to the lives and the welfare of the general population. It destroys essentially those companies and industries that live a parasitical existence at the expense of the rest of the economy and which owe their existence to our present fiat money system. Even in the short run, therefore, deflation reduces our real incomes only within rather narrow limits, and it will clear the ground for very substantial growth rates in the medium and long run. We should not be afraid of deflation. We should love it as much as our liberties. Herg Guido Holzman, Angers, France, October 2008. One. The 20th century has been the century of omnipotent government. In some countries, totalitarian governments have established themselves in one stroke through revolutions, apparently a bad strategy for none of these governments exist anymore but in other countries totalitarianism has not sprung into life full-fledged like venus from the waves in the united states and in virtually all the western european countries government has grown slowly but steadily and if unchecked this growth will make it totalitarian one day even though this day seems to be far removed from our present The fact is that in all Western countries, the growth of government has been faster over the last 100 years than the growth of the economy. Its most conspicuous manifestations are the welfare state and of the warfare state. Now, the growth of the welfare warfare state would not have been possible without inflation, which for the purposes of our study we can define as the growth of the supply of base money and of financial titles that are redeemable into base money on demand. The production of ever-new quantities of paper dollars and the creation of ever-new credit facilities at the Federal Reserve have provided the liquidity for an even greater expansion of bank-created demand deposits and other money substitutes, which in turn allowed for an unparalleled expansion of public debt. US public debt is currently, in December of 2002, at some $6.2 trillion, up from under $2 trillion at the beginning of the 1980s, and less than $1 trillion before the era of the paper dollar set in when President Nixon closed the gold window in the early 1970s. The link between the paper dollar and the exponential expansion of public debt is well known. From the point of view of the creditors, the federal government controls the Federal Reserve, the monopoly producer of paper dollars, and it can therefore never go bankrupt. If necessary, the federal government can have any quantity of dollars printed to pay back its debt. Buying government bonds is thus backed up with a security that no other debtor can offer. And the federal government can constantly expand its activities and finance them through additional debt, even if there is no prospect at all that these debts will ever be paid back out of tax revenues. The result is seemingly unchecked growth of those governments that control the production of paper money. Among the many causes that coincided in bringing about this state of affairs is a certain lack of resistance on the part of professional economists. In the present essay, I will deal with a wrong idea that has prevented many economists and other intellectuals from fighting inflation with the necessary determination. Most economists backed off from opposing inflation precisely when it was needed most, Namely, at the few junctures of history when the inflationary system was about to collapse. Rather than impartially analyzing the event, they started fearing deflation more than inflation, and thus ended up supporting reflation, which in fact is nothing but further inflation. Footnote. For the purposes of our study, we will define deflation as a reduction of the quantity of base money or of financial titles that are redeemable into base money on demand. Again, this deviates from the usual connotation of the term, which defines deflation as a decrease of the price level. But as the reader will see, our analysis will cover both phenomena, deflation in our definition and a decrease of the price level. The point of our definition is merely to render our analysis more suitable for practical application. A monetary authority at all times can prevent deflation in our definition, while it can at times be unable to prevent a decrease of the price level, even by pumping great quantities of base money into the economy. End footnote. The United States of America has experienced two such junctures. The years of the Great Depression, and the little depression we are facing right now in the wake of the first global stock market boom. Today, again, the deflationary collapse of our monetary system is a very real possibility. In November of 2002, officials of the Federal Reserve, Greenspan and Bernanke, and of the Bank of England, Bean, proclaimed there would be no limit to the amount of money they would print to fend off deflation. These plans reflect what today is widely regarded as orthodoxy in monetary matters. Even many critics of the inflationary policies of the past concede that under present circumstances, some inflation might be beneficial if it is used to combat deflation. Some of them point out that there is not yet any deflation and that therefore there is no need to intensify the use of the printing press. But on the other hand, they agree in principle that If a major deflation set in, there would be a political need for more spending, and that, to finance the increased spending, the governments should incur more debts and that the central banks should print more money. Such views have a certain prominence even among Austrian economists. Ludwig von Mises, Hans Sennholz, Murray Rothbard, and other Austrians are known for their intransigent opposition to inflation. But only Sinholtz did not flinch from praising deflation and depression when it came to abolishing fiat money and putting a sound money system in its place. By contrast, Mises and Rothbard championed deflation only to the extent it accelerated the readjustment of the economy in a bust that followed a period of inflationary boom. But they explicitly, Mises, and implicitly, Rothbard, sought to avoid deflation in all other contexts. In particular, when it came to monetary reform, both Mises and Rothbard championed schemes to redefine a paper currency's price of gold to restore convertibility. The main weakness of this scheme is that it implies that the reform process be directed by the very institutions and persons whom the reform is supposed to make more or less superfluous. It is also questionable whether our monetary authorities can legitimately use quote, their gold reserves to salvage their paper money. In fact, they have come to control these reserves through a confiscatory coup And it is therefore not at all clear how plans for monetary reform a la Mises and Rothbard can be squared with the libertarian legal or moral principles that Rothbard champions in other works. But there is also another issue that needs to be addressed. What is actually wrong with deflating the money supply from an economic point of view? This question will be at center stage here, which can fortunately build on Rothbard's analysis of deflation, which demonstrated in particular the beneficial role that deflation can have in speeding up the readjustment of the productive structure after a financial crisis. But no economist seems to have been interested in further pursuing the sober analysis of the impact of deflation on the market process and of its social and political consequences. The truth is that deflation has become the scapegoat of the economics profession. It is not analyzed, but derided. 100 years of pro-inflation propaganda have created a quasi-total agreement on the issue. Wherever we turn, deflation is uniformly presented in bad terms, and each writer hurries to present the fight against deflation as the bare minimum of economic statesmanship. Economists who otherwise cannot agree on any subject are happy to find common ground in the heartfelt condemnation of deflation. In their eyes, the case against deflation is so clear that they do not even bother about it. The libraries of our universities contain hundreds of books splitting hairs about unemployment, business cycles, and so on, but they rarely feature a monograph on deflation. Its evilness is beyond dispute. Yet this silent accord stands on shaky ground. A frank, and enthusiastic endorsement of deflation is at any rate in our time one of the most important requirements to safeguard the future of liberty. All right, let's take a quick sponsor break right here. My blankie fort is getting hot, so I'm going to need to take a step out of here. But before I do, let's talk about eToro. Um, Funny thing uh, before I get into our little ad, I was actually wondering what the hell Etoro meant earlier this week when I was talking about them. and Because it's spelled with a lowercase e and then the t is capitalized to kind of imply the prefix like uh, e-money or e-sports or e-mail, you know, whatever. So I was thinking if, you know, e-mail means electronic mail, what is a Toro? Uh, turns out it's a uh, Spanish name that means bull. So eToro is an electronic bull and their little logo has horns on either side. So it was like, oh, whoa. I just thought that was cool and thought I would share it with you. But the eToro exchange is our sponsor for this episode. And I've been using their platform recently and loving it. Uh, You can buy or trade 14 of the top cryptocurrencies, but the neatest aspect of their platform is that there's this social network side where you can connect to 10 million plus users and you can view the actual portfolios of the top traders so you can study their actual trades, you can discuss strategies, and then hear news and events with a global community of traders. Their app is really easy to use and it only takes a minute to download and set it up and you can get started immediately with a virtual account to test out your trading strategy and kind of get a feel for the platform. I'll post the link in the show notes and on social media, so please take some time and check out the eToro exchange and let me know what you think about it. Alright, so I'm going to get another drink and then get out from this heat in here for just a minute, but thanks to the magical power of editing, you won't know it happened because we are jumping right back into Deflation and Liberty by Herg Guido Two. When it comes to matters of money and banking, all practical political issues ultimately hinge on one central question. Can one improve or deteriorate the state of an economy by increasing or decreasing the quantity of money? Aristotle said that money was no part of the wealth of a nation because it was simply a medium of exchange in inter-regional trade, and the authority of his opinion thoroughly marked medieval thought on money. Scholastic scholars, therefore, spent no time inquiring about the benefits that changes of the money supply could have for the economy. The relevant issue in their eyes was the legitimacy of debasements because they saw that this was an important issue of distributive justice. And after the birth of economic science in the 18th century, the classical economists, too, did not deny this essential point. David Hume, Adam Smith, and Etienne de Condillac observed that money is neither a consumer's good nor a producer's good, and that, therefore, its quantity is irrelevant for the wealth of a nation." This crucial insight would also inspire the intellectual battles of the next four or five generations of economists, men such as Jean-Baptiste Say, David Ricardo, John Stuart Mill, Friedrich Bastiat, and Karl Menger, who constantly made the case for sound money. As a result, the Western world had much more sound money in the 19th century than in the 20th century. Large strata of the population paid and were paid in coins made out of precious metals, especially out of gold and silver. It was money that made these citizens, however humble their social status, sovereign in monetary affairs. The art of coinage flourished and produced coins that could be authenticated by every market participant. Some present-day libertarians harbor a romantic picture of these days of the classical gold standard. And it is true that it was the golden age of monetary institutions in the West, especially when we compare them with our own time, in which the monetary equivalent of alchemy has risen to the status of orthodoxy. But it is also true that Western money institutions in the era of the classical gold standard were far from being perfect. Governments still enjoyed monopoly power in the field of coinage, a remnant of the medieval regalia privileges that prevented the discovery of better coins in coin systems through entrepreneurial competition. Governments frequently intervened in the production of money through price control schemes, which they camouflaged with the pompous name of bimetallism. They actively promoted fractional reserve banking, which promised ever-new funds for the public treasury and they promoted the emergence of central banking through special monopoly charters for a few privileged banks. The overall result of these laws was to facilitate the introduction of inflationary paper currencies and to drive specie out of circulation. At the beginning of the 19th century, most of Europe, insofar as it knew monetary exchange at all, used paper currencies. And during the remainder of that century, things did not change much. England alone among the major nations was on the gold standard during the greater part of the 19th century, and banknotes of the Bank of England played a much greater role in monetary exchanges than specie. In fact, the reserve ratio of the bank seems to have been around 3% for most of the time, and occasionally it was even lower. In short, the monetary constitutions of the 19th century were not perfect and neither would the monetary thought of the classical economists satisfy us today. David Hume believed that inflation could stimulate production in the short run. Adam Smith believed that inflation in the form of credit expansion was beneficial if it was backed up with a corresponding amount of real goods. And Jean-Baptiste Say similarly endorsed expansions of the quantity of money that accommodated the needs of commerce. Smith and Ricardo suggested increasing the wealth of the nation by substituting inherently valueless paper tickets for metallic money. John Stuart Mill championed the notion that sound money means money of stable value. These errors in the monetary thought of Hume, Smith, Ricardo, and Mill were, of course, almost negligible in comparison to their central insight to repeat that the wealth of a nation does not depend on changes in the quantity of money. But eventually a new generation of students, infected with the virus of statism, worship of the state, brushed over that central insight and thus the errors of the classical economists, rather than their science, triumphed in the 20th century. Men such as Irving Fisher, Knut Wixell, Karl Helfrick, Friedrich Bendixson, Gustav Cassell, and especially John Maynard Keynes, set out on a relentless campaign against the gold standard. These champions of inflation conceded the insight of the classical economists that the wealth of a nation did not depend on its money supply, but they argued that this was true only in the long run. In the short run, the printing press could work wonders. It could reduce unemployment and stimulate production and economic growth. Who could reject such a horn of plenty, and why? Most economists point out the costs of inflation in terms of the loss of purchasing power. Estimates run as high as 98% reduction of the U.S. dollar's purchasing power since the Federal Reserve took control of the money supply. What is less well-known are the concomitant effects of the century-long great dollar inflation, paper money has produced several great crises, each of which turned out to be more severe than the preceding one. Moreover, paper money has completely transformed the financial structure of the Western economies. At the beginning of the 20th century, most firms and industrial corporations were financed out of their revenues, and banks and other financial intermediaries played only a subordinate role. Today, the picture has been reversed. And the most fundamental reason for this reversal is paper money. Paper money has caused an unprecedented increase of debt on all levels, government, corporate, and individual. It has financed the growth of the state on all levels, federal, state, and local. It thus has become the technical foundation for the totalitarian menace of our days. In the light of these long term consequences of inflation, its alleged short term benefits lose much of their attractiveness. But the great irony is that even these short run benefits, in terms of employment and growth, are illusory. Sober reflection shows that there are no systematic short run benefits of inflation at all. In other words, whatever benefits might result from inflation are largely the accidental result of inflation hitting a particularly favorable set of circumstances, and we have no reason to assume that these accidental benefits are more likely to occur than accidental harm. Quite to the contrary. The main impact of inflation is to bring about a redistribution of resources. There are therefore short-run benefits for certain members of society, but these benefits are balanced by short-run losses for other citizens. The great French economist Friedrich Bastiat made the quite general point that the visible blessings that result from government intervention into the market economy are in fact only one set of consequences that follow from this intervention. But there is another set of consequences that the government does not like to talk about because they demonstrate the futility of the intervention. When the government taxes its citizens to give subsidies to a steel producer, the benefits to the steel firm, its employees, and stockholders are patent. But other interests have suffered from the intervention. In particular, the taxpayers have less money to patronize other businesses. And these other businesses and their customers are also harmed by the policy because the steel firm is now able to pay higher wages and higher rents, thus bidding away the factors of production that are also needed in other branches of industry. And so it is with inflation. There is absolutely no reason why an increase in the quantity of money should create more rather than less growth. It is true that the firms who receive money fresh from the printing press are thereby benefited, but other firms are harmed by the very same fact because they can no longer pay the higher prices for wages and rents that the privileged firm can now pay. And all other owners of money, whether they are entrepreneurs or workers, are harmed too because their money now has a lower purchasing power than it would otherwise have had. Similarly, There is no reason why inflation should ever reduce rather than increase unemployment. People become unemployed or remain unemployed when they do not wish to work or if they are forcibly prevented from working for the wage rate an employer is willing to pay. Inflation does not change this fact. What inflation does is to reduce the purchasing power of each money unit. If the workers anticipate these effects, they will ask for higher nominal wages as a compensation for the loss of purchasing power. In this case, inflation has no effect on unemployment. Quite to the contrary, it can even have negative effects, namely if the workers overestimate the inflation-induced reduction of their real wages and thus ask for wage rate increases that bring about even more unemployment. Only if they do not know that the quantity of money has been increased To lure them into business at current wage rates, will they consent to work rather than remaining unemployed? All plans to reduce unemployment through inflation, therefore, boil down to fooling the workers, a childish strategy, to say the least. For the same reason, inflation is no remedy for the problem of sticky wages, that is, for the problem of coercive labor unions. Wages are sticky only to the extent that the workers choose not to work. But the crucial question is, how long can they afford not to work? And the answer to this question is that this period is constrained within the very narrow limits of their savings. As soon as a worker's personal savings are exhausted, he willy-nilly starts offering his services even at lower wage rates. It follows that in a free labor market, Wages are sufficiently flexible at any point of time. Stickiness comes into play only as a result of government intervention, in particular in the form of A, tax-financed unemployment relief, and of B, legislation giving the labor unions a monopoly of the labor supply. Since we are not concerned here with questions of labor economics, we can directly turn to the connection between employment and monetary policy. Does inflation solve the problem of sticky wages? The answer is in the negative and for the same reasons we pointed out above. Inflation can overcome the problem of sticky wages only to the extent that the paper money producers can surprise the labor unions. To the extent that the latter anticipate the moves of the masters of the printing press, inflation will either not reduce unemployment at all or even increase it further. All right, we are going to close this one here. This is about halfway, a little over halfway through this piece maybe. Um, And uh, there's some really, really good stuff coming. Uh, So uh, stick with me. We will be covering part two tomorrow and I'm going to redefine and kind of explain. I'm going to go through the whole thing in the commentary and I'm going to hit a guy's take all about this and uh, the idea of uh, are, are kind of the consequences that we can see from deflation and inflation in an economy, and then talk about what it means for the future of the Bitcoin economy. What does it mean for the crypto economy to, be, to, to use a monetary asset that, uh, whose uh, essentially soundness, whose monetary soundness will essentially uh, expect a constant falling in the price levels of goods across the economy? How, how can that possibly work? Um, because, you know, in the general sense of things, it seems like it doesn't. And what's funny is we have actually hundreds of of reasons why we should know that it actually does work, and examples of it constantly working. So we're gonna dig all into all of this stuff uh, later. And I hope you stick with me. Don't forget to subscribe. I am at The Crypto Economy on Twitter. And of course, subscribe to the show on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Spotify, wherever it is that you're listening to this show on. And we will be digging back into this to finish up this awesome piece by Hurg Guido-Holzman and again, made available by the Mises Institute. That is mises.org. They are the place to go for Austrian economic theory and for learning about the foundations the ideological economic foundations for the bitcoin system where did the thoughts about money and uh what the economic results of sound money and foundations of sound money were uh where did they come from and how did they develop and i love i love going into this history stuff so i hope you guys are as nerdy as i am and uh we will be hitting more of this in the future uh subscribe and we will be back here with uh part two tomorrow Thank you guys so much. This is the crypto economy. I am Guy Swan, your host, the guy who's read more about Bitcoin than anybody else. You know, don't forget to check out our sponsor for this episode, the Etoro Exchange. I will have the show notes in um, the show notes. I will have the show notes in the link. I will have the link in the show notes and the uh, Twitter post. So don't forget to check them out and uh, download that app to start using it. And I guess that will be everything. Share this shit out with all the people you know in the Bitcoin and crypto economy space. This is where they're going to learn all about the technology, the philosophy, and the history that is providing us a foundation for building the crypto economy and, and sending us into the future. So uh, if they want to hear about that, they want to hear about Bitcoin, they want to learn what all this means, how they're going to get their privacy back, their sovereignty back, Well, that's why we are here. I am Guy Swan. This is The Crypto Economy. I will catch you all tomorrow with another episode. And until then, take it easy, guys.